Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussion held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in October of 2016. Our talk is hosted by our former president, Andrew Mizzoni, and Dr. Paul Davidson. Dr. Davidson is a leader in the post-Keynesian school of thought. Initially, he did not begin his career as an economist, earning a bachelor's degree from Brooklyn College in, in chemistry and biology. He began graduate school as a biochemistry major, but eventually switched to economics. Dr. Davidson finished his master's at the City University of New York and his PhD from the University of Pennsylvania, both in economics. He had held numerous high positions within academia, think tanks, as well as the private sector, and currently holds the Holy Chair of Excellence in Political Economy Emeritus at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Dr. Davidson offers a depth of knowledge on subjects such as monetary policy, macroeconomics, global payment systems, and income inequality. He is the founder of the Journal of Post-Keynesian Economics and is the author of 22 books, including Who's Afraid of John Maynard Keynes, financial markets, money, and the real world, and many more. Together, we discussed why economists didn't see the 2007 financial crisis coming, why Hyman Minsky's theory of boom and bust may have been exaggerated, and the role that savings and investment play within the economy. We hope you enjoy this episode, and make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Professor Davidson, thanks for, for being with us. So let me introduce uh, Professor Davidson. He's the Professor of Excellence Emeritus at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. He's a visiting scholar at the New School, and he's taught it at the University of Bristol, University of Cambridge, and, uh, and taught at Rutgers. Let me just say that we've chosen to interview him because, in our opinion, he's been the economist who's been mostly right for the longest period of time in America. Now, he's a post-Keynesian, and of course, that's kind of an odd school, a different school. It's a heterodox school. It's not the classical school. So I'm going to introduce him by the two questions that he posed in his book, which was Post-Keynesian Theory and Policy. Uh, Paul talks about the Queen of England that in 2008 mystified as to what went on. How could this happen? How could, this, uh, how could this world come apart when there's so many smart people watching the store, so many mainstream economists studying the problems? So the queen poses a rhetorical question. And also, after the, uh, after the crash, the doyen of uh, conservative economists, uh, Federal Reserve guy, Greenspan, uh, Greenspan goes in front of Congress, mea culpa, mea culpa, uh, I find a flaw in my model. Of course, he didn't specify the model. It was understood it was a mainstream model. And, uh, of course, everyone shook their head. Oh, okay, you found, a, you found a, a flaw. But in the meantime, after the deluge, we see that a, few, few, a small percentage of the population ends up owning all the wealth after all this monstrous error. But no one's saying anything about that. They're complaining a little now. But they get away with it, in effect. So, Paul, my... Uh, I throw it to you. How could you smart guys have missed all this? Well, my answer 
in the book was very simple, that the theory that almost all economists uh, who taught uh, politicians and businessmen and and uh, others, uh, media people, uh, it was a theory which was a theory about a fairy tale economy, which we call it, we I call a classical economy, but basically it was how an economy is very efficient and works fine and so on and dandy, and if you don't mess around with it, uh, you get the results and. When this thing happened, this crash, nobody could understand it because nobody was fooling around. Uh, no government official was fooling around. There was some regulation, but not much regulation. And uh, the thing crashed. And everybody thought they were doing right, but they were doing wrong if they would have had a theory about the real world rather than this theory, this fairy tale theory. So the question is, what's the difference about the real world from the fairy tale world? And that's where I point out or I argue that <clears throat> Keynes was an academic, but also was a big uh, uh, wheeler and dealer in financial markets and in government, understood how the real world uh, operated. Uh, one thing, for example, that I tell uh, mainstream economists, and, and uh, which is shocking to me, is uh, in, in the real world, every market transaction that we have is organized via a money, a money contract. That is, even if it's verbal, uh, shaking hands is a contract, which is a legal document, basically. And if one party or the other doesn't agree, it doesn't live up to it, what it agreed to, the government can come in and enforce. And the payment is always, the obligation is always, uh, will be, will be fixed by paying out money. The example I, I often used to, uh, when I was teaching in the students was, suppose I uh, suddenly got a phone, uh, here I am at Tennessee, and I get a phone call from the dean at Harvard, and he says, uh, our macroeconomist has suddenly died. We need somebody to come and teach. Can you teach? Come and teach right away, and we'll give you this X thousands of dollars. And of course, teaching at Harvard is much more prestigious than teaching at Tennessee. So I said, of course. And I march into the dean's office and I say, uh, I'm sorry, but I'm leaving uh, because I got this great offer. And the dean says, you can't leave. We have a contract. And I say, I don't care. Uh, slavery is illegal. You can't make me teach here because then I'd be a slave. So I'm leaving. Okay, leave. But he can sue me. And what can he? And and my obligation is not to go back and teach. Because that would be slavery. But my obligation would be the court would say I have caused a certain amount of damage, and the dean has to hire somebody else, and it's certain costs. So I have to pay him a certain sum of money, which the court decides, pays him for all the costs, and I'm, and gets him back to where he wants to be. So money discharges every obligation. And so money becomes the essence of understanding how economy operates. Well, if you're just a layman, you understand that very well because you're dealing with money all the time. Well, the classical but, economists uh, say that money is neutral, that essentially uh, it, uh, over time it cancels itself out and, 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 and things that are affected by money aren't affected at all long term. They just deny uh, that principle. Well, that's it. In the, in the mainstream economics, contracts are real. 
it's it's equivalent of a barter economy. You want a chicken, I'll give you uh, a, a goat. You, uh, I'll give you a chicken if you give me uh, milk from a goat or something like that. We we barter things, but barter is very rarely done. It's done occasionally, but very rarely. And a barter contract is usually not enforceable in the, in the law anyhow. So you've got to understand how a monetary economy operates. And that's why I've been more successful because I think following Keynes, uh, I understand how a monetary economy operates, whereas most of my professional colleagues, Nobel Prize winners or otherwise, don't really understand. They think money is just a veil and you have to get behind money to see what is really happening. Minsky, Hyman, Hyman Minsky. Would you consider him a classic economist, even though he had a theory of boom and bust based on, you know, uh, overdoing investment enthusiasm, uh, uh, that it was built, built into the system, but not necessarily implying that money was not neutral? Hi uh, uh, and I were good friends, and, and for a number of years, uh, we had a summer school in Trieste, Italy, where we both would teach. Uh, and... High sort of was, what should I say, a high bread. High was a high bread. He was half classical and half money. He saw that something in the financial system, particularly financial markets, tended to create problems. But he really didn't buy into uh, Keynes's theory of liquidity completely. So he, you know, but when the market collapses, as it did to People talk about this as a Minsky moment because that's uh, how I kept saying that somehow or other financial markets collapse. Well, when I, uh, when we, Hi and I used to talk, I used to say the last, and this was before 2008, this was in the late 1990s, the last time you had a Minsky moment was in 1929 and he was still living the Great Depression and understanding, he understood how the Great Depression operated or what happened when the Great Depression occurred because of the financial collapse. And he was continually saying this was going to happen. So in 2007 or eight, he was probably right. But, it, you know, that's uh, uh, 70 years or 80 years difference. Uh, in 80 years, the economy did a lot of things which I really couldn't explain or didn't care to explain. He kept, he kept saying, we're going to fall off the bridge soon. Let me just make an aside, although it's not the mainstream of, of uh, my discussion with you. You have a reference in your book about George Soros's uh, reflexive uh, view of uh, the monetary system. Now that's starting to creep into discussions. Uh, if you could explain your view of reflex, reflex, ref, the reflexive element of for Soros's theory. Uh, juxtaposed to the liquidity preference theory, I think it would be a very interesting explanation for, for many people. I know George Soros, and in fact, I'm on an advisory board for George Soros has set up a Institute for New Economic Thinking, and I'm on the advisory board of that. And it's be because there is a, a, a confluence between what George is thinking about. We overlap a little bit. And basically, uh, the part where we overlap is where George says basically uh, economy is reflexive, meaning that what people do and react to each other affects the future. Okay. 
And that is is basically what same thing that Keynes and post-Keynesian argument was. Was that the future is created by decisions that people make today in the money market, in the financial markets, and even sometimes in real investment and, and, and things like that. So George's theory is right in the sense of behavior, today's behavior creates tomorrow's problems or successes. Uh, and that's reflexivity. And, and basically the problem then is how do you predict it? And I, I should point out, maybe I should, maybe, well, let's leave it at that. I'll talk about George more if you ask questions. Well, okay, well, let's go, let's go to the liquidity uh, preference theory, which essentially says that, that, the, that money can, can hide out in non-reproducible assets. Now, this seems to be a huge difference here between the classics and the post-Keynesians and Keynes. And I, I, I think this is a crucial, crucial difference. I think you had the argument with uh, Samuelson at the 100th birthday uh, celebration of Keynes, where you challenged him, saying, well, you know, how do you come up with, you know, uh, the, the, the fact that non-reproducibles uh, uh, are, are not uh, something that will nullify, let's say, Say's law. I think it's a crucial, it's a crucial concept, and I'd like you to explain to the audience just how crucial that is and how important it is to, that differentiates your school from, uh, from the mainstream. Very simple. First of all, remember this idea that everything in the market requires a money contract. Liquidity means you have money to meet all your contractual obligations. If you, what happens if you can't meet a contractual obligation? You got a big problem. Okay. So, uh, you can have either uh, a bank deposit, which is a, which is money and you can write checks. But when you save, when you take your current income and you spend some of it on buying goods and services, you are creating income for the people who are selling products to you. The portion of your current income that you don't spend, you save. And the question is, what form do you leave this savings in? Well, you could hold it as money and put it, if you're a miser, put it in the mattress or something like that. But most people take this sum of money that they have and they buy some financial asset. That is, they buy a stock, a bond, a mutual fund, a money market account, and so on and so forth. Well, what is that money asset? That's uh, that financial asset. Uh, they buy it because they think it's liquid. That is, that uh, if I have a stock in General Motors, uh, I cannot go into the grocery store and buy something and give them one share of General Motors to pay and ask for a change. I have to go and, and get money. So if I need money to buy something in the grocery store, I, can, I know I can resell General Motors stock and get a price. And the price is going to be very close to the price, the last price on the ticker. So a liquid asset is a, a, a financial asset, which is non-producible. That is, uh, it's not something that you produce by, by hiring workers. If the demand for financial assets go up, uh, you don't hire workers to produce more financial assets. Okay. Uh, and so the idea is I can sell this asset in a resale market for a price. It becomes liquid. 
that is, it can become converted into money very easily at very low cost, brokerage fee or something like that. And then I can discharge this contract at the supermarket. Now, the, the Keynes said that these that liquid assets, including money, had two essential properties, and these essential properties is what causes uh, some financial problems. One is that they are non-reproducible. That is, uh, unlike uh, peanuts, for example, if the demand for peanuts goes up, what will happen? Entrepreneurs will uh, hire. I used to love that example when when Jimmy Carter was uh, president because he was a former peanut uh, farmer. His son and his brother Billy was still, and I'd say Jimmy Carter should have made Billy head of the Federal Reserve uh, because if the demand for money goes up and the money is peanuts, uh, Billy will hire more workers and, and, and pluck more peanuts off the bushes, and that's how you create peanuts. So when the demand for liquidity for money goes up, if it's producible, that creates a demand for jobs, a demand for workers. So if we get back to the idea of a consumer, when he buys things, he's creating jobs for workers. If he saves, if he, if he saves in the form of non-producible, that is not creating jobs. That part of his income is, in essence, denying somebody a job. If he well, spends the, his the, income, it's creating the argument a job. Might be, okay. The argument might be for the same as would say, if you bought a stock, isn't it true that the, the, the cash uh, that you pay could be used for real fixed investment? And therefore, there's a non-reproducible that in effect turns into, uh, in effect, a reproducible, uh, continuing the link. Your comment on that? Well, let me put it a slightly different way than you put it. If I save, that's preventing somebody from earning income. In order to make sure that person who I'm not giving income to gets, in, gets income, somebody else in the economy has to dissave, has to spend more than his income, to create this job for this person that I am. So uh, normally we think of investors don't usually use their savings to buy new uh, durable uh, manufactured uh, plant and equipment and so on and so forth. They instead go out and borrow it or sell equities or something like that. So this saving equaling to my saving that still creates income. But if they stop this saving, if they stop spending more than they're earning, and I stop, don't spend everything, then people's incomes shrink and incomes go down. And that was what Keynes's theory was all about. In an entrepreneurial economy, spending money on producible goods is creating income. A penny saved is a penny not earned by somebody, it, it would be Keynes's uh, motto as opposed to Benjamin Franklin. But it's not a one to one. Uh, relationship there because again, some leakage could actually go into real investment, creating real jobs. So it's not a hundred percent going into non-reproducible doesn't necessarily mean that all that money is is out of the economy. Would you agree well, with that? I think what you're saying is, don't corporations use retained profits to buy uh, investment goods? And to some extent, they do. But most investment is done by external financing of some sort, which is borrowing money from the banks or from the public. Uh, and the public 
in that case, is, is, is putting their savings in a financial asset, which they call an equity or corporate bond. Okay, uh, so the savings is still going into a non-reproducible, but then the person who gets the funds can use the funds to buy the services of, of workers and capitalists and so on and so forth. And, and the problem is, in an accounting sense, if I save, two, one of two things can happen. Somebody can dissave and spend on investments, so my savings equal their investment. Or if I save and nobody dissaves, then somebody's income goes down and they save less so that the total savings in the economy is, is less than, than it would be otherwise. And that was the moral of Keynes' theory. So that Why do you think that, uh, that uh, Samuelson and, and the boys reject that? I mean, that's fairly obvious. I mean, you can almost prove that empirically. I mean, uh, well, it, it's interesting you ask. Uh, on the 100th anniversary of Keynes' birth, there was a, a celebration at Cambridge University. I went there. A whole bunch of people went there. Uh, in fact, I have a picture on the wall I can even show to you. Uh, of all these economists uh, seeing who are, it. Who were some of them that were there? Can you? Uh, let me. Go ahead. I don't know if you can see this or not. Well, we can see the picture. We can't identify the faces, of course. Okay, but... there's Paul Samuelson sitting right up in front. Joan Robinson, Nikki Caldor. Uh, there's Paul Samuelson. Uh, 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 Axel Leonhoff and myself. Sure. Kel Stiglitz, a whole bunch of people. Oh my God, was uh, was Pasinetti there? Luigi? Uh, I do not think uh, Luigi was there, no. No. Jeff Harcourt was there. Oh my God, okay. Ken Arrow. Okay. Sure. Uh, as you can see, there's about maybe 75 minutes. What a rogues gallery. Well, anyhow, uh, when Samuelson got up, he started talking about Reconstructed Keynesians versus the non-reconstructed, and he's talked about Joan Robinson and Sidney Weintraub, who was my mentor and myself, as a non-reconstructed Keynesian, but he was a reconstructed Keynesian because he found that Keynes didn't exactly get the theory right, and he was getting the theory right. And in reconstructing Keynes, he was getting the theory correct. And this, and uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and. Uh, what was the idea? Well, Samuelson, you got to go back even further. And when he went for his PhD, he, his PhD was a book he later published called Foundation of Economic Analysis, which won the Wells Prize, which is the best PhD at Harvard and so on. So here was a young man getting out of, uh, getting his PhD. And everybody, well, Harvard was, you know, like the, the pinnacle of economics at the time. Uh, he was identified as some sort of genius. And what was his theory? It was uh, the uh, the Walrasian theory, more ma mathematized and so on and so forth, which he said had to be the foundation of all economic theory. If you didn't have Walrasian theory, you didn't have a good theory. Now, I don't know how much you want to go into the technical but Valrasian theory says basically it's a barter economy. Things switch for good. There is no money in, in the Valrasian theory. And not only that, but today, if I wanted to save to buy, why do I want to save? Well, I don't need 
uh, skis today because it's summer, but I'm going to go skiing in the winter. So I saved some of my income today in order to rent skis in January or something like that. But I, in the Varesian system, I don't just save it in the form of liquidity. I put in a contract with the ski renter to say on January 15th, you, I'm going to be there for two weeks. You got to have skis of this size and so on and so forth. So that all income is spent immediately on goods and services today or on ordering goods and services for tomorrow, a week from tomorrow, a year from tomorrow, and actually a thousand years from today is uh, as, as well. Pre that presupposes that uh, you, can carry, you can carry a probability distri distribution of, of things happening today forward in time. And I don't believe you, but you, you fellows, Keynes, yourself, now, the people believe that it's a regardic, that uh, these probability processes can well, be uh, projected in the future. Therefore, well, what, what it implies is I know what I'm going to buy a week from today. I know I'm going to a restaurant six months from today, and I know exactly what I'm going to order at that restaurant six months today. And I put in the order today so that six months from today, they'll have the roast beef that I want, et cetera, and so on. And the, if I want uh, Jack Daniels, they'll have the Jack Daniels and, and so on and so forth. Now, that's, and, and Samuelson's argument was, that's the foundation of all economic theory. And if you do that, then everybody is maximizing their welfare and everything is being produced that is wanted to be produced. And this is the most efficient economy you have. And I pointed out to Paul at this, uh, Paul Samuelson at, the, at this uh, Cambridge meeting, well, didn't he ever read this chapter uh, in the back of Keynes's book about essential properties of interest and money, the liquid assets were non-producible and so on and so forth? And he said, oh, there's stuff in the back of the book that really was not very important. To, uh, so the answer was, as far as I could see, he never read it. And in fact, later on, he's interviewed, uh, and the interview was published by uh, Colander, uh, and his colleagues, uh, in which he said that he found the general theory unpalatable. He didn't really understand it. And so he just said, well, it must be a Valrasian theory uh, where the market doesn't work well because prices are not perfectly flexible and, and therefore that's what causes unemployment. Well, you can't so the answer was Samuelson didn't know what Keynes wrote. Or also, you can't mathematize the Keynesian system in a closed form. Once you go into, and into non-reproducibles uh, and you agree that probability distributions of today can't be legitimately projected into the future, then how can you have a closed system? So he would reject that simply because the math wouldn't work. Right, that's the point. The, the orthodox economists in the 19th century, in order to work out their theory, assumed that people knew the future. Uh, in modern technology, that's called the ordering axiom. That is, when I make a decision, I know exactly what the results of that decision is going to be a week from today, a month from today, a year from today. If I buy a lathe, a manufacturer, I know exactly what the revenue is going to be generated over the life of this uh, revenue. Whereas Keynes said, when I buy a, a lathe, if I'm an uh, entrepreneur, why do I buy it? I have animal spirits. It tells me I'm going to make profit. I don't know exactly how, where the 
when he's going to, but I, it, so there's a difference between knowing the future and not knowing the future. Well, by the 20, 20th century, uh, we no longer assumed people know the future with absolute certainty, <clears throat> but we said they could do probability theory. So you did probability analysis, and therefore you, uh, you could insure yourself in essence. And there are certain things that you can insure, such as, uh, will my house burn down? And you can buy insurance of that. But you'll notice in the insurance policy, it says your house is insured, except in cases of war or other things which are not predictable. So if uh, for some reason your house burns down, not for a normal cause, uh, we can understand that, that, that you're not insured. So even in things that are insurable, the insurance company always sticks in a little statement saying, unless something happens that we can't foresee. When you buy a, a mutual fund, uh, they show you how much they've earned in the past, but they always have a little statement in, on the bottom saying, past revenues is not any guarantee of future returns. So you don't know, you see. The future is uncertain, or in put it in modern probability theory is what I call non-agotic. Well, Paul Samuelson said that's nonsense. He just didn't believe in that, you know, the future. Well, of course, if by not believing in that and if believing in efficient market theory, this allows you a license to basically do pretty much what you want on the theory that you can't go wrong, that the market somehow will correct you and guide you to the right uh, ends. And, of course, 2008 gives us a demonstration that this is absolutely not true. Why hasn't the economic profession uh, taken account of that and really revised uh, their theory based on overwhelming evidence that there isn't such a thing as an efficient market in a, in, in a, in a true sense, and that you need regulation? There are people on, the, on TV uh, and in the uh, media, in the printed media, who are Wall Street experts. Now, the question is, if they're such Wall Street experts, can they predict what the stock market is going to be or what a particular price of a particular stock is going to be a week from now and a month from now and so on? Anybody who can forecast correctly has got instant riches. So why is these guys, if they can make so much money predicting, why do they bother selling their predictions to the public? And the answer is because they know their predictions may not work out. And the easiest way is, you know, to be like Barnum. There's a sucker born every minute. There's somebody who's always willing to listen to what I have to say about the, the market. So we, we have evidence every day that, you know, the future uh, is not predictable even in the financial markets. Well, if you look at modern financial theory, however, the people who make the theory say, let us assume that people in the market know the future. And then the, then the buyers and sellers operate and the market knows and corrects. If somebody makes a mistake and does something, everybody sees that's a mistake because the market is going up and you're selling when it's going up and they correct by buying and so on. So that the market knows where everything is going. Well, the market knows after the fact, but not before the fact. And that's the difference between theory and reality. But the answer is uh, the problem, oh, let me put it this way. The problem is 
uh, if you believe in in this theory that you can predict the future, then you can sell this to all these uh, fools who who are like Barnum, you know, born every minute, and you can make a lot of money on TV and the media, etc. Uh, if you're like my post Keynesian, uh, people get get worried. Uh, wh what what can you tell me about the future? And the, my answer is, I can't. Well, what good are you as an economist if you can't tell me about the future? If you were uh, if you were an astronomer, you could tell me when the next solar eclipse will occur. If you were, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. So that's the problem. Uh, what I have uh, and what Keynes had, had to say. What I what I and some post Keynesians say is, look, the future is uncertain, and we know we don't know. Well, that being the case, then all of the insurance on the derivatives, all the derivatives, all of these unstructured securities, all which uh, were rammed through by deregulation, were ultimately doomed to fail. But in failure, there's great wealth for certain people. So if I'm an investment banker, and I have to choose between a Paul Samuelson uh, theory and, and a Paul Davidson theory, I'm taking Samuelson because I do not want to be regulated, number one. And number two, I make more money in destruction than I make in legitimate business. So you see, the, the theory is useful. And I'm not, saying, I'm not saying this in a conspiratorial sense, but as a freewheeler, I'm a Goldman Sachs banker, I know what Paul Davidson says. I get that. I know what I know what you're all about. But I don't want to hear it. Okay, I don't want to hear it because I, if even if I blow up, right. I make money. Right. You know, so I don't want to get into that as a, as any kind of conspiratorial theory. I think uh, smart people just go for the weakness and just exploit it. But to that end, because we don't have a hell of a lot of time, and this I could go on for hours with you. Let's take uh, another aspect of theorizing about free trade, of which you have some eloquent work in your recent book about the implications of free trade and the pros and cons. In fact, your book is worth a read in so many ways, but the free trade discussions that you have, I mean, it's just nothing short of brilliant. And, and again, let me just lead you into this. I'm an, I'm an American corporate executive. Uh, I'm, I'm in the 70s now. There's a couple of issues going on. Number one, for me to monopolize technology and, uh, and the GNP growth, doing more than half the GNP growth of the world, I'm leaving a lot of other countries in the wayside. And I know as a good capitalist, this is not going to be good for me in the long run. So I'm willing to share I'm willing to share my wealth. I'm willing to give you some manufacturing. Basically, even if I just arbitrage out my labor, to just, just get cheap, cheap labor. You made the point that technology can shift instantly anyway, so that you know, the Ricardian issue of free trade doesn't apply. But, but cheap labor applies tremendously. And of course, this hurts working and middle class people in the long run. And of course, today people would argue that's not true, but it is true. So you would have argued against that kind of tra transformation. But again, I'm a Wall Street guy. I really don't give a damn about, <laughs> uh, 
push right. you let, me, let me give you an example now of free trade and you've pointed out that in, in mass production as opposed to natural resources and so on and so forth the reason why we buy this stuff from china and china is now having difficulty because vietnam can undersell them and so on is because they pay workers very little they uh they value human labor very much lower in the market than we do, you see. But after all, that means that as a consumer, I can buy something a lot cheaper than if it was made in North Dakota or uh, South Carolina or something like that. And the question I always ask these people about free trade is, suppose we had a foreign factory that used slave labor to produce, I don't know, to assemble iPhones or something like that. And then they were brought in and we could buy iPhones a lot cheaper because slave labor is very cheap, obviously. Would it be, would we as an Americans want to encourage the importation of slave labor produced goods? I know the answer, of course, is no. But then again, uh, price is price for a lot of Americans today. And, and in effect, a lot of these countries are employing slave labor, it's quasi slave labor in many cases. I mean, the working well, conditions are horrible. How about oh. child labor? We have laws that says you're not allowed to have children under 14 working in, in certain kind of factories. They have to be even older than that before they can work and so on. We think that it, you shouldn't make people work more than 40 hours a week. They have to have uh, uh, free time to go to the bathroom, to eat and so on. And these other countries don't have these, uh, what, we, what I call civilized labor laws. Again, that makes labor cheaper in these other countries. Should we allow child labor goods, if you don't want slave labor, child labor goods being imported into this country? And the answer is, if, if we, we, we believe ourselves to be a civilized people, why have we passed this law? in the United States that prevent child labor. Uh, why did we have the Civil War? Why don't we just let slaves produce cotton and just think how much cheaper clothes would have been made in New England uh, out of cotton produced by slavery in the South? If we didn't have the Civil War, we could still have slaves in the South. Uh, you may remember the Rust Belt versus the South. What, what was the difference? In the North, in the, which is now the Rust Belt, we had union who insisted on wages, uh, certain labor conditions and so on, which if you moved your factory to the South, you didn't have to meet these conditions because there were no la labor uh, unions, okay? So that left the North with a lot of unemployment uh, and created uh, jobs in the South. Uh, there was a movie, I forget now, one about textiles, which had a great story about this type of thing. What, what was the difference was uh, we still had labor laws. You couldn't have children working there. You could pay them less than, than uh, union wages. Okay. But then the unions went down to the South and tried to organize the workers in the South. And that was a created problem. Well, the ultimate answer to that was to free cheap and, and unions were just raising prices and raising wages was break up the unions. Now, uh, Calvin Coolidge had started that in, in 1924 when he broke up the police workers union and it was not very popular. 
But Ronald Reagan did the same thing when he broke up the air traffic controllers. And Ronald Reagan gave the signal that it was perfectly civilized, socially acceptable to break up unions. I got, I got that signal, by the way. What's that? I, got, I got that Reagan signal. You got that clear. Reagan signal when you were just, right. uh, working for Sure. Right. And so you did, broke up the unions, right? Under Roosevelt or under uh, Truman or even under JFK or even under Eisenhower, you didn't get that kind of signal. Okay, but also, if you, you do outsource all of that, eventually you have no purchasing power with which to continue the game. You can live off your savings, you can borrow from the, from the people who you've outsourced to, but ultimately you underline the, under, uh, undermine the purchasing power of the main source, which is what we did in America uh, significantly. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah. Sure. yeah. Okay. The, uh, and that helps hollow out, we talk about hollowing out the middle class. What made this very prosperous middle class after the Second World War? It was the fact that they were mainly blue collar and, and low income white collar workers who were suddenly getting high wages and became from lower income into middle income people. Once we started destroying, uh, just to give you a point, when I first got my PhD, my first job as a professor was six, for $6,150 a year. That was my salary. At that point in time, uh, this is 1958, plumbers made more than assistant professors. Okay, because plumbers were still unionized, assistant professors were not. So you could see the, why plumbers would be in the middle class, assistant professors would be struggling to become professors so that they could get to the middle class. But I would, I would argue as a manager of state that if I'm looking at the long-term interests of, let's say, the American empire, I'm willing to suffer these consequences as long as I can bring other countries, other elites into my system. And even if it's only countries that 10 or 15% of the population have the purchasing power to trade with my 10 or 15%, I'm okay with that. I, I eliminate communism, the threat of communism. I have circulation and demand with the top 15% of the population around the world. And if I marginalize workers, middle class and workers around the world, I'm really okay with that. In a bit, I'm not gonna say that, but in effect, that's kind of, kind of what, what, what happens here. And, uh, and the argument would be, look, if we didn't do this, we'd have wars, we'd have, we'd have World War I, World War II, those conditions repeating. We'd have autarkic development, souped up development of Germany, Japan, and China. So if we bring them in, co-op the, uh, the, top, the top group, spread the purchasing power amongst them, keep our elites with purchasing power. So if we marginalize everybody else, you could always say, look, get a better education, it's, it's your fault. But it's not a bad strategy if you can stand the pressure and, and you can put austerity on the rest of the population. Now, I would argue in doing that, I would have insisted on, instead of marking to the market like the financiers do, I would have said, okay, makes sense to me that you need to do this for geopolitical reasons. I would mark to the genie coefficient. You can do it as long as the Gini coefficient looks the same after as it did before. Now, you know, if that were the case, a lot of this wouldn't have happened. Your comments. 
the, the problem in international trade, let's get to this problem, for example. Uh, Keynes said, uh, writing in the 1930s, that what foreign, that free trade had become a system where you pushed onto foreigners things that you produced that you couldn't absorb in your own economy. So you forced them to buy it. And you did that at the expense of producing it themselves, which might create unemployment. And, and, uh, and, and so he had this plan, uh, which he brought up at, at Bretton Woods, about what do you do about free trade to make sure that free trade doesn't just push unemployment onto others. And it was a very simple plan. And I'll give you an example. It really was enforced at one point in time. Uh, if, you, if, if I buy a product produced in the United States, I'm creating income for people in the United States. If I buy a product like an iPhone, I'm creating some income for Steve Jobs, but the people who assemble the iPhone and so on are people in China or Vietnam and so on. So I'm creating income overseas, which is good. And people say, well, look how nice China has grown and fewer people in poverty in China. Thank you, America, for doing that. But I'm doing it at the expense of American workers who could assemble the iPhones here and get good income. By the way, I should point out the one thing about the iPhones is they found that the glass in the iPhones, there was nobody in China who could make the glass to the specifications of, of, of uh, what Steve Jobs wanted on the iPhones. So the glass from the iPhones is made in Corning, New York. It shipped all the way over to China to be assembled in China and then shipped back to the United States. You know, you think about that as a waste of, of, of resources. So the, the point Keynes was making was, if a country is selling things to you, they're earning income. If you're buying things from them, you're giving them the income. If your balance of trade is just equal, the amount of income that you're spending overseas is roughly equal to the amount of income they're spending in your economy, so they're sort of balancing out. But if they're running a persistent trade surplus, export surplus, then they're earning more from you than they're allowing you to earn from them. So his answer was, in that case, there should be some rule which says the trade surplus country has to spend its surplus. And let me give you an example. After the Second World War, Europe was devastated. They needed food, they needed products, but they could not produce it because their, their production facilities had been devastated by the war. And the United States had produced all this extra food and, and other things. And who were they going to sell it to? Okay. So what we did is we adopted a form of Keynes's plan, which had, we called it the Marshall Plan. And what was the Marshall Plan? Every year we gave 3% of our gross national product to European countries who said, here, here's dollars. Buy American goods with it. And so they, uh, since they couldn't buy European goods because they had no productive facilities, so they bought American goods. And therefore we got 9 million men and women out of the military and they had jobs for them, even though we weren't producing tanks or military. Why? Because they were producing things that the European could use. So the Marshall Plan, which gave away 3% of our, GD 3 to 5% of our GDP for about five years, turned out to be very, income profitable for us and also for the Europeans. 
by the way, you, one thing that people don't even realize, we even offered the Marshall Plan to the Soviet Union. You know, they didn't accept it when we offered it to them. So there was a good example of, of like, in essence, we took a Milton Friedman would say we took a helicopter and dropped money on the Europeans so they could buy, uh, drop dollars on the Europeans. And that was prosperous for us and prosperous for everybody. So Keynes' proposal in the Bretton Woods was if there is a country such as China or Japan uh, who continually runs trade surpluses with the United States or Germany with Europe, uh, we ought to have some mechanism which forces that country to spend these surpluses on buying things from the deficit countries, which gives the deficit country a chance to work their way out of debt, which is what we want them to do. Say. Okay, but I would argue if I'm a Chinese planner, I'm so far behind the GNP per capita curve versus America that I need to do this and I need to build up capital. I need to accelerate my growth, even if I'm sacrificing my own two or three generations of workers in China, I need parity with the United States, and therefore I need this asymmetrical trade. This is a question of survival in the Chinese mind. The Japanese got to equilibrium okay, but the Chinese are basically saying, we need to equal the United States in strength because we're afraid of the United States ultimately. So therefore, well, because, because more, than, more than just the trade and the equalization here, this becomes a strategy of, of global proportions. Well, let me say about China, uh, there's a venture capitalist in, in Manhattan named Henry Liu. He lived up in, in his 60s. And, uh, I know who he is, yes. You know who he is. Yes, I do. Well, he's a, he's good a good friend of Michael Hudson. He's a good friend of Michael Hudson. And, we, and Henry knows people in, in China. And so Henry and I sent a letter a few years ago to people in China, including the Central Bank of China, saying that what you're doing is you're relying too much on exports for economic growth. What you have to do is increase aggregate, domestic aggregate demand. You have to somehow create more demand locally for your products and not so much. Now, the Chinese have tried it once or twice. They've not been very successful at it. Uh, they they have done some infrastructure and so on and so forth, which is what both Hillary and, and uh, Bernie wants to do to get, create jobs here. And, and even uh, Trump talks about it occasionally. Okay. The problem is the Chinese, until Vietnam and Bangladesh and so on, came in and undersold China. But now China is running into the problem is they can't keep their workers employed because they're being undersold by this other foreign trade. And that's the problem with foreign trade. If you're relying on foreigners to buy your stuff when you have productive facilities in your country and you have people in your country that would like to have more of the stuff that you can produce or should be producing. Well, the Chinese, would probably, the Chinese would probably argue we agree with that, but we're not, our, our capital equipment and technology complement is not quite equal to the United States. So we'd rather plow the demand we might give away to consumers back into capital equipment, hand to mouth, get rid of it overseas, whatever way we can, until we reach a geopolitical comfort level that our capital structure technically is the equivalent of the United States capital structure, rather than leveling off at a lower growth and then have to 
use the demand to ratchet up at a, at a slower pace. Well, that assumes that you've got, your technical structure has got to be the same if you're producing the same products. You're producing different products, you know. Well, essentially, you're going you to produce. Not, you you may not that. need the same technical structure. Yeah, but you uh, basically have proven the fact that that uh, essentially modern economies are essentially interchangeable. Uh, te uh, technically speaking, this is not a bananas versus machinery issue here. China is in the same zone as temperate zone as America. I mean, they they ultimately eighty five percent of what they're going to produce is manufactured or technology, and they probably feel they must equal us. Well, in, in that complement of, of technology. I, mean, the, I was in China about two years ago or something, and what amazed me was you walk down Beijing, the streets of Beijing, and 95% of the people were holding uh, wireless phones. I assume they were iPhones, I couldn't tell just because. And everybody was talking on an iPhone in, in, in China, and you think of China as this poor country. Now, I didn't go out into the countryside, and it may well be that in the countryside, farmers don't have iPhones yet, but everybody in the city had an iPhone. So, you know, the Chinese were not only producing enough for to sell it back to the United States, but they were producing enough, apparently, for their own population. I suspect now that the, the, the a lot of iPhone production is occurring in Bangladesh rather than that. Uh, the question is, if if we put the question, there's two questions. One is domestically, uh, your work is fully employed. Is is the total aggregate demand of your workers, your capitalists, your landowners, and so on? So, uh, are they getting everything they really need, sort of, or want? Let me put, not need, but want. So that they're they're being saturated with demand, okay, uh, and then the question is, what what should we do? Uh, and in that case, if we continue to produce, the the implication is we're going to produce more than America wants to buy. I don't think that's the case, but it, it could be. Well, then we have to have leisure. Remember, uh, after the, in the uh, uh, 1930s and 40s, we passed the 40-hour work week. Uh, before that, people worked a lot more than 40 hours, right? In many uh, occupations now, people work less than 40 hours, right? Oh, you can take up with that. Uh, let's, let's take a look at the old leisure is a good substitute for work, for work okay. if you got enough good. But then if you're, not, if you're not keeping up with China, who doesn't ha take the leisure, then you might be nervous from a from a competitive point of view. But let's go back to a, a closed American system. Okay. I mean, the American system in the 1800s, the American system was high wages, but forced draft innovation because of those high wages. And the technology that was forced because of that allowed America to compete around the world. By outsourcing, we kind of kill that internal technical development across the board. We still have it in, let's say, pharmaceuticals, uh, universities, and so forth. But by having free trade, we, we lose that impetus to, to, to drive new technological de developments. But if I'm, again, if I'm an investment banker, I don't particularly care where technological developments come from. I'm just arbitraging short-term profit opportunities sure. all the time. Okay. And so that's a problem. But then this begs the ultimate question, a Keynesian question, Let's assume all countries 
reached the, sun, the, the current state, the optimal state of technology where they don't really have to trade for each other in any significant uh, way. Does the capitalist system as currently constituted always going to be deficient in demand? In other words, are you going to, because of technology, because more and more things can be made by fewer and fewer people, uh, do we have you know, a realization problem that's endemic to the system? I mean, Keynes confronts it in a downturn in the, in the, in the uh, depression. But kicking the football down the road to the present time and, 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 and forward, given automation on all of that, fewer and fewer people can make everything that we need, and therefore more and more people are going to become marginalized. Therefore, if you want to keep these people on the planet, you're going to have to have government spending of one form or another. And uh, do you have any comments on that? In other words, is there enough aggregate demand if an economy is balanced out without the government having to artificially induce it by well, its investment and so forth? I think you're, you're tiptoeing around the question that uh, unemployment in the United States is no longer a problem of outsourcing because we've lost, we don't in increase our, but it's automation that robots are increasingly taking over from humans and recreating jobs uh, via robots, unless you work for Delta, as you know what happened yesterday with, with the robot computer system, which I'm sure if it was done by humans, it would have not gotten as serious as it did get. But the question of robots, okay. And here, uh, I must say, I've, uh, there's a, uh, a professor uh, uh, at Syracuse University, who's a law professor, who has and I've uh, uh, who has the idea that somehow or other, what we have to do is get these robots, which are capital investment of firms, basically, to get the uh, workers to own more of the capital equipment, not in a communist sense, but in the sense of uh, getting. Uh, workers to be able to borrow from banks to uh, put in robots, okay, and use the income that they would generate because they had the property right in the robots then to pay off these loans, so that the more of the more income is going to capital in in some sense, but still ending up in workers' pockets. Okay, so that the workers don't suffer from from automation. Now that's uh, that's an old theory. Uh, I don't know if you know uh, Kelso, Leon. Kelso. Oh yes, the two factor the two factor theory. Sure. Yeah, well, he, he had this idea of uh, ESOPs. Mutual, yeah, mutual fund of of every yeah. workers who end up owning all American industry by investing. Sure. And and so it's it's the I, the question then becomes, is there some way that workers can get uh, property rights in capital if capital is going to take over all human effort in what we call labor then how are people going to earn income there was a, a movie called sleepers i don't know if you ever saw it by woody woody allen in which everything was done by robots. You had robots serving your meals, cleaning your clothes, in your house, and so on and so forth. Even had robots for sex, so you didn't have to find a sexual partner. The thing that what he didn't figure out is 
how did people buy these robots to work their houses? You see, you need incomes to buy these robots. See? And that, that's the question. If we, if we automated everything so that humans never had to lift a stick or something like that, how are we going to get all this population? Well, we, we Georgians would argue this. We say that today, according to our calculations, uh, the U.S. economy uh, consists of 30% of monopoly profits of one form or another. I mean, if you take, you know, take land rents, you take uh, monopoly capital corporations, if you fairly follow uh, the trail of monopoly, about 30% of what we kick off in the GMP is a form of monopoly. If we tax that and tax nothing else, and we issue that as a citizen's dividend, in effect, you'd start to correct that problem as it went. And, uh, but I don't want to get into uh, espousing that. That's kind of the things we're looking at and work on, work on here. But uh, we think that uh, we can finesse that problem by really taxing monopoly and therefore give it to the citizens. Not, not what we call give it to a, a Stalin figure who takes the rents in, you know, Soviet Union, but in effect creates a citizen's dividend for monopoly as a base income and then let things ride from there. We think the system would, would self-correct pretty well, especially if the citizens were informed. They saw the money was theirs. They know why they got it. And then the more things were automated, the more monopoly you'd be creating and the more, more tax you'd be creating well, back. But, but wait a second. Monopoly, what is the source of this monopoly? An awful lot of the source of monopoly is what we call patents. Patents, yes, but you'd have to look at patents. Now, we give look. patents because we think it's desirable to encourage people to do technological research and development and so on. So the government, on one hand, is going to create this uh, profit opportunity, and now you're going to say, well, we're going to use the income tax to take it away from them. Well, if you're going to use the income tax to take it away from them, why do they, what good is the patent going to be? Well, the patent's, the patent's got a finite life, but you're talking about, you know, ownership of land and resources where you're getting rents which are, which are unearned, uh, which are unearned. And if those things were just taken, and they wouldn't distort the system, the system would still be a free enterprise system, but you would be relieving that constant buildup of monopoly. Everything is tending toward monopoly today, one form or another. Take, take the uh, Facebook. I mean, it's the first move of monopoly in, in, in space, in the, in the internet. Nobody's gonna ever challenge that. If they're making monopoly profits, you tax a percentage of that profit and, 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 and contribute it to the, to the citizens' dividend, let's say. Kane said, you know, Winston Churchill once said, democracy is the worst form of government except for all other governments that ever tried. As far as Keynes was concerned, capitalism is the worst form of e economic system except for all other systems that have ever tried. And his argument was, well, let's see if we can improve the operation of capitalism. And he said there were two major problems of capitalist system that made it bad. One was a failure to provide persistent full employment. And the second was the arbitrary and inequitable distribution of income and wealth. Okay, for, for, for much of the years since the Great Depression, we solved the full employment problem pretty well and until recently, okay. The, the income and wealth problem we haven't solved. Uh, why? Because what's happened is because of monopolies and, and the ability to outsource production, reduce the wages of, of the middle class in the United States and increased the profit opportunities of uh, of the entrepreneurs of domestic firms. Okay, so what you're saying is, well, why can't we 
uh, it's the old argument is that with trade, there's going to be winners and losers. Uh, why can't we get the winners to compensate the losers for uh, their loss? And then everybody will be better off because trade provides more goods cheaply. And the question is, uh, just look at the tax system uh, under uh, if Trump gets elected and even under if Hillary gets elected and, you know, ever since Reagan, the tax system is not, has become less progressive, not more progressive. And you're saying, well, we're going to just make it more progressive. Well, politically, I don't think that's a possibility, uh, but maybe you're right. Uh, so, uh, so I don't look, I don't see that as a, it's an economic solution, but I don't see it as a political solution. The alternative is, as I say, uh, I don't know, in the corporation you had, did you, did, did you pay your executives partly with stock options? Well, okay, that's, that's the alternative, giving workers stock options so that they get property rights in the capital. Well, it's the same thing, you give it away, you give it away the monopoly back to the general population, and no matter how you cut it. Well, uh, the question is you're giving it back, but you're giving it back in a way which is uh, socially acceptable as well as legal. I mean, there are two things you have to worry about, legality and, and social acceptable. Uh, I mean, if you look at most of the CEOs, uh, they get this millions and millions of dollars in income, but a lot of it is stock options. It's not all paid to them in cash, but nobody objects to that. But it's taxed. It's taxed. If you're a hedge fund person is taxed at a different rate than otherwise. But if you're a CEO of a regular corporation, it's taxed as income. Right? They get all the power. That's why it's done. It's a, it's, a power, it's a power relationship. And we would argue, as Georges, that cutting into monopoly is fair and understandable. You can, you, can, you can understand what is monopoly and what is, we're arguing, we would be arguing, no tax on incomes at all or profits. Just tax a percentage of the monopoly that's thrown off in the system, and it would equalize and it would relieve the pressure of the system. Nothing's perfect, but it would be a powerful equalizer to, well, uh, especially for aggregate, aggregate demand issues. Well, remember now. Final, final comment is yours. Profits, we can avoid, as long as you're a multinational corporation, you can avoid your profits tax by keeping your profits offshore. Okay? And... A lot of corporations do that. So although you have a higher rate of profit on the books in the United States than you do in Ireland or many other places, the actual rate of profit that many big corporations pay is much lower than the, than the, the book rate. Okay, So uh, another point that Keynes made about all of this was you had to have control of capital flows as well. Or in, uh, I think Hillary has even pointed out that she would want to tax uh, profits that were not repatriated uh, immediately. She would have them taxed anyhow. So you could get to the profits that way. But as long as you have this global view of the economy, there will always be ways people will game the system. And the question is, can you figure out uh, some system where Legally, they can't game the system. Well, it seems to me one of the legal ways is equivalent of ESOPs, give workers property rights in capital, in which case it doesn't matter because they have 
they get that income no matter where it's located. See? Where is it? Otherwise, you have to worry, hope that the IRS is doing their job and taking the income from one group and giving it to the other. And very rare that the winners uh, compensate the losers in international trade. Professor Wolf, the New York professor, he advocates workers' participation in corporate management and basically control the workplace and right. vote, vote, in effect, themselves, you know, uh, an equivalent, uh, what he considers a, a moral wage or a recompense. He's saying until, until workers control the workplace itself, that nothing can happen. Your comments on that, and it'll be your final comment. Well, I mean, the idea of workers sitting on uh, board of directors, I suppose, is what he's thinking of, rather than, that, or is he thinking of just management? Uh, management. He's thinking of all the way through management and up to the board of directors that they would they would be part and parcel of corporate decision making. I see. Okay. Well, there's nothing wrong with that, except uh, the stockholders have a, a right to say who sits on the management and on the board of directors. So, how are you going to change the law? Well, that's, the, that's another, that's another, that's another law. problem, though, isn't it? But anyway, Paul, yes. uh, any, any, any final comments you want to make? Because it was a great interview. Glad to have you. Let me, a, a, let me say that this Go book, ahead. which you've been talking about, uh, I originally wanted to, or I was told originally that we ought to title it. It's called Post Keynesian Theory and Policy. That a better title would have been Who's Afraid of John Maynard Keynes? Uh, because if you just say the word Keynes, people fear him almost as much as they would fear if I said Karl Marx. The difference is Keynes would try to save capitalism. Well, let me, let me say this. That book, your book, and I know you've written many of them and I've read many of your books. This particular work is terrific. I mean, it is a great, it's compact, it's concise, it's to the point. Uh, I don't know what the right title should be, but I wouldn't be surprised if it becomes your most influential work, even though it's not your most heavy-duty work. I get it, it's kind of a, an abridgment of what you understand and know, but it was so to the point and covered so many of the crucial topics. I read it and I said, this is the book I want to interview you with. It is, a, it is a great, great book. So why don't you put it up, because we get, we get hundreds of thousands of viewers now. Uh, show it right, right, right now. Okay. Okay. That's okay. Good. Perfect. This book is worth its weight in gold in understanding current policy right now. And Paul Davidson is one of the greats in economics over the past 50 years. Not always honored, but more correct, I think, than any other economist that I know. So, to a Brooklyn boy. Thank you. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.